On September 1st, about midnight, Mrs. A had a friend telephone the police that she and her daughter had been gassed. The police found no signs of an intruder, but Mr. A reported that when he came home about two hours later, he saw a man run from the window. The police were called again, and again they found nothing. The next evening, the Mattoon Daily Journal Gazette carried a front page story on the gas attack and a headline, Anesthetic Prowler on the Loose. On the following day, Sunday the 3rd, Mr. B reported to the police that he and his wife had had a similar occurrence. In the middle of the night of August 31, the night before Mr. A's attack, he woke up sick and wretched and asked his wife if the gas had been left on. When she woke up, she was unable to walk. At first, they had attributed these symptoms to hot dogs eaten the evening before. About the same time, Mr. C, who works nights, told the press that his wife and daughter had likewise been attacked. The daughter woke up coughing, and when Mr. C got up to take care of her, she could hardly walk. They did not suspect gas until they had read the papers the next day. These two accounts appeared in the Mattoon paper on September 5, since no paper was printed on Sunday the 3rd or Labor Day the 4th. On the evening of September 5th, two new attacks were recorded. Mrs. D came home with her husband about 10.30, picked up a cloth from the porch, smelled it, and reported that the fumes burned her mouth and lips so badly that they bled. Mr. E, who works nights, reported that his wife heard someone at the bedroom window, smelled gas, and was partially paralysed by it. On the 6th, three more cases occurred, according to the police reports. On the 7th, none. On the 8th, four. On the 9th, five. And on the 10th, seven. This apparently was the climax of the affair, for no cases were reported on the 11th, only the one on the 12th, and none thereafter. Welcome to the last episode of this season of Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. The story of the phantom anesthesis begins in Mattoon, Illinois on the first night of September 1944 when a woman reported to the police that someone had opened her bedroom window and sprayed her with a sickish sweet-smelling gas which partially paralyzed her legs and made her ill. Soon other cases with similar symptoms were reported and the police organized a full-scale effort to catch the elusive gasser. Some of the Mattoon citizens armed themselves with shotguns and sat on their doorsteps to wait for him. Some even claimed that they caught a glimpse of him and heard him pumping his spray gun. As the number of cases increased, as many as seven in one night, and the facilities of the local police seemed inadequate to the size of the task, the state police with radio-equipped squad cars were called in, and scientific crime detection experts went to work, analysing stray rags for gaseous chemicals, and check in the records of patients recently released from the state institutions. 
Before long, the phantom anesthetist of Mattoon had appeared in newspapers all over the United States, and Mattoon servicemen in New Guinea and India were writing home anxiously, inquiring about their wives and mothers. After ten days of such excitement, when all victims had recovered and no substantial clues had been found, the police began to talk of imagination, and some of the newspapers ran columns on mass hysteria. The episode of the phantom anesthetist was over. What you just heard was an excerpt from the article The Phantom Anesthetist of Mattoon, written by Donald M. Johnson just after this mysterious incident occurred and published in the April 1945 edition of the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. Johnson goes on to explain the strange happening using logic born of hindsight. Quote, there is always the possibility of a prowler, of course, he writes, and it's quite likely that some sort of gas could be smelled at various times in Mattoon. But these things do not cause paralysis and palpitations. Hysteria does. Mass hysteria, psychological contagion, mass sociogenic illness, conversion disorder, mass psychogenic disorder, epidemic hysteria. These are all names for the bizarre and disturbing phenomenon you just heard described. But how is it possible that huge groups of people can all fall ill or be incapacitated by physical symptoms of sickness that no doctor can diagnose, or be moved to perform some odd repeated behavior for days or even weeks or months on end with no biological cause? Today's episode will explore some famous instances of mass hysteria and then try to answer just that question. Let's get it out of the way right at the top. Probably the most famous incident involving this level of psychological contagion is the Salem Witch Trials. There are many, many great sources covering this one. Aaron Mankey's new podcast, Unobscured, is truly a remarkable example, so I won't get too far into it. But I would be remiss not to mention what occurred between February 1692 and May 1693 in colonial Massachusetts. There's a lot of background behind what happened, but for our purposes, let's say it all started when four teenage girls began to have powerful convulsions that were described by a local minister as beyond the power of epileptic fits or natural disease. During these fits, the girls would cry out horribly, saying they were in terrible pain. They would writhe on the floor, their limbs seizing up or even fall catatonic. The girls, Abigail Williams, Betty Paris, Anne Putnam Jr., and Elizabeth Hubbard, said that the cause of these fits was witchcraft practiced against them by people, mostly women, in the community. These allegations grew and grew, both in number and strength, until more than 200 people had been publicly accused of being witches. Hearings began in 1692 in the towns of Salem Village, which is now Danvers, Salem Town, Ipswich, and Andover. The most infamous trials were conducted that year by the Court of Oyer and Terminer in Salem. 
The accusers grew in number as well, and the accused were thrown in prison on evidence no stronger than the statement of people who said they were being tortured by invisible hands. Nineteen of them, fourteen women and five men, were found guilty and hanged. One more, a man named Giles Corey, was crushed to death when he refused to enter a plea. He was stripped naked and a heavy board was placed on his body, and then heavy boulders were put on top of the wood. He was subjected to this torture for two full days by Sheriff George Corwin, but when he was asked three final times to enter a plea, he said only more weight, and the sheriff complied until he died. At least five others died while being held in nightmarish jails. Contrary to popular belief, however, no one accused of witchcraft in Salem was burned. This was certainly not the world's deadliest witch hunt. That dubious title belongs to the Würzburg Witch Trial, which took place in Germany from 1626 to 1631 and led to 157 men, women, and children being burned at the stake in the city and an estimated 900 killed in the entire Prince Bishopric Principality. But when all was said and done, the Salem incident was the deadliest witch hunt in the history of the United States, and it's definitely America's most notorious case of mass hysteria. It lives on today as a popular cautionary tale about the dangers of false accusation and the failure of due process and a warning against religious extremism. As historian George Lincoln Burr wrote, the Salem witchcraft was the rock on which theocracy shattered. The next one is among the oldest recorded incidents of mass hysteria, and it's truly a fascinating one at that. In July of 1518, citizens of the city of Strasbourg, Alsace, which is now part of France and was then a part of the Holy Roman Empire, were overtaken by the wild urge to dance. First to be afflicted was a woman called Frau Trophy, who stepped out into the street and, without music or a partner, started to twirl and gyrate madly. She danced alone for days, some say four, some say as many as six, before a crowd began to join her. By the seventh day, an estimated 34 more people were dancing in the street, and by August, the number had climbed to a shocking 400. Most of them were women, and before much longer, the ceaseless movement began to take a toll. Local doctors had no idea what was going on, but they said they thought it was best to let the dancers work through the fever that was caused by their, quote, hot blood by continuing to dance. So the town did what it could to encourage the afflicted. They built a stage and brought in professional dancers to join them. They brought in musicians to play backup music because they believed that the dancers would only recover if they danced continuously, night and day. These measures, of course, led to more dancing and the numbers went up and up. It seemed that the sight of dancing in public spaces spread the mysterious contagion. The town's strategy was a disaster. After over a month of constant movement, the dancers began to collapse from sheer exhaustion. Some of them had heart attacks and strokes, and many died. One report goes so far as to say that at one point in August, the dancing plague killed 15 people a day. But still, 
they danced. As Benjamin Lee Gordon wrote in his 1959 text, Medieval and Renaissance Medicine, they danced together ceaselessly for hours or days and in wild delirium. The dancers collapsed and fell to the ground exhausted, groaning and sighing as if in the agonies of death. But when recuperated, they resumed their convulsive movements. It didn't end until September. After the number of afflicted people rose still higher and the body count continued to climb, all of the dancers were whisked to a mountaintop out of town, away from the public eye, where they were forced to pray for absolution. It's still hard to say exactly what happened in Strasbourg in the summer of 1518, because there are few contemporary records, and the science of the time did not allow for rigorous examination. But you may be surprised that this is not even the only dancing plague in history. Similar events happened in Switzerland, German, and Holland, but none were as big or as deadly as Strasbourg's. Over the past 500 years, scientists have put forth many theories. One of them is ergot poisoning, which can happen when the ergot fungus grows on a community's food supply. The fungus is particularly prone to developing on grains like wheat and rye, which were staples of the European diet in the 16th century. Ergotamine, which is the psychoactive component of ergot fungus, is actually related to lysergic acid diethylamide, also known as LSD. In fact, it was the substance from which LSD was first synthesized. So were the people of Strasbourg just tripping on acid for months and months? It seems pretty unlikely that this was the case, because the duration of the incident and the fact that it prompted the exact same response in over 400 people do seem to point to something else. And that something else, of course, is mass psychogenic illness. As in other cases, the sufferers were mostly young women. They were living in a particularly ruthless time in which their stress level would have been constantly elevated. Both of these facts are considered contributing factors, as we'll discuss in a bit. So why dancing? Well, the explanation seems once again to come from a religious fear. Pious Catholics of the 16th century honored the feast of the martyr St. Vitus by dancing in front of his statue. They also believed that he had the power to curse people with a dancing plague. The association was so strong that the illness was called St. Vitus's Dance. This specific affliction, combined with the enormous strain of life in medieval Europe, could have been the flame that lit the touch paper, causing a mass hysteria so specific to its time that we have not quite seen the like of it again. Jumping ahead a few hundred years, our next case took place in Tanganyika, which is now Tanzania, in 1962. First, some context. Tanganyika was a sovereign state that existed just from 1961 to 1964. Before that, it was under the rule of the United Kingdom, and before that, it was briefly under German rule. But in 1961, after nearly a century of European colonialism, it won its independence. It remained, however, a state headed by the Queen of England, 
and in 1962, the year of this incident, it became a republic within the Commonwealth of Nations. In 1964, it joined with the Republic of Zanzibar and Pemba, and within a year, the new state was called the United Republic of Tanzania, which it remains today. This history lesson is just here to illustrate that in 1962, the people of Tanganyika were living through a time of tremendous change, uncertainty, and about a hundred years of chronic stress caused by imperialism. The outbreak began on January 30th at a mission-run girls' boarding school in Kashasha. Three girls began to laugh. Some say at a joke, some say they just got the giggles, and they could not stop. They laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Soon, the girls around them began to laugh. And just as with the dancing plague, the inexplicable behavior appeared to be contagious. For the next month, it spread until 95 of the girls' 159 students were affected. They laughed for days on end, and the other pupils couldn't concentrate or do any work. The staff appeared to be immune, but after the hysteria had gone on for 48 days, the school had to be closed on March 18, 1962. All the girls were sent home, but they took the strange laughter with them. Several of the afflicted students lived in the village of Nishamba, and so the epidemic spread there. By May, 217 children and young adults had caught the laughing plague, and the sound of their giggles echoed through the streets. The school was reopened on May 21st, but the laughter still had not ended, and at the end of June it had to be closed again. That month, the outbreak spread to a girls' school on the edge of the town of Bukoba, and 48 more students began to laugh. The sufferer's symptoms included not just the sound of laughter, but also more disturbing physical complaints. They said they were in pain, and they would sometimes cry as they laughed. They developed rashes and respiratory problems, and they would sometimes begin to scream randomly and at the top of their lungs. Some would even begin to run aimlessly or even lash out violently at people around them. For months and months, the contagion spread until an estimated 1,000 people were affected. In total, 14 schools were shut down and reports say the epidemic went on for perhaps as long as a year or more. Then, in late 1962 or early 1963, the phenomenon stopped and did not start again although similar events have taken place in other areas of instability, like Kosovo, Afghanistan, and South Africa. The final incident I want to mention is even more recent. Lest you imagine for even a moment that these types of mass hysteria are a thing for another century, this one started barely over a year ago, in November of 2016. Three weeks after the contentious election that put Donald Trump in the presidency, an American who worked at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba, began to tell people that he was hearing strange noises outside his house. He said that it was so irritating that he had to close all his windows and turn up the TV just to get some peace. Patient Zero, as he became known, mentioned the weird sounds to a co-worker who happened to live next door, and the man said that he heard them too. He described them as being mechanical-sounding and repetitive. The mysterious problem continued for months until a third embassy worker started suffering hearing loss. 
He said it was caused by a strange, constant sound. Then the issue began to spread. More and more staffers talked about it, and then more and more staffers reported that they were hearing it too. Then they began to get sick. The symptoms ran the gamut, and they were terrifying. Some people had headaches and hearing loss, and others reported mental stupor and even memory loss. They said they couldn't concentrate and that the sound went everywhere with them, but no one could figure out what it was. Eventually, about two dozen people were evacuated to the U.S. for testing and treatment, but the mystery was not over. Scientists in the state could not come to a conclusion about what had caused the sound. The U.S. government released a series of statements that were not founded on any science, saying that a targeted sonic weapon was being used by the Cuban government, even after multiple studies proved that this was not possible. Microwaves were tested and rejected, and even crickets were put forth as a possibility. But after over a year of research, the best conclusion I've seen is the thing we've been talking about this whole episode. Mass psychogenic illness. A stressful time, a stressful place, and the spread of a mysterious malady through repeated telling of a scary story. It's the perfect recipe for hysteria. behind what happened in Strasbourg in 1518, or Salem in 1692, or Mattoon in 1945, or Tanganyika in 1962? What happened when similar epidemics broke out in a small rural girls' school in Blackburn, England in 1965, or among a group of cheerleaders in North Carolina in 2002, or at a high school in Dewey, Oklahoma in 2017, or in countless other tight-knit communities throughout time? I'm sure you've started to get a picture of how this works, but let's break it down. As I said at the top, there are several names for this phenomenon. Freud called it conversion disorder because it's caused by the converting of psychological distress into physical aches and pains and behaviors that have no physical basis. Nowadays, it's often referred to as mass psychogenic illness or mass psychogenic disorder, and it's defined by Robert Bartholomew and Simon Wesley, two of the topic's top researchers, as, quote, the rapid spread of illness signs and symptoms affecting members of a cohesive group originating from a nervous system disturbance involving excitation, loss, or alteration of function, whereby physical complaints that are exhibited unconsciously have no corresponding organic etiology. Essentially, it's the spread of a set of physical symptoms through a close-knit group that originate from a problem in the nervous system that has no physical cause. So who's most susceptible? As you may have noticed, many of these cases center on a group of young women or girls. In fact, in a 2017 article for Psychology Today, Bartholomew states that Most, and often all of those, affected are females. In fact, of the 2,000-plus cases in my files which date back to 1566, this pattern holds true over 99% of the time. The core question is not if, but why females are more susceptible to mass hysteria. Explanations fall into two broad camps, nature and nurture. 
He goes on to say that the nature angle is supported by the simple fact that females tend to be the most afflicted group, regardless of the culture in which they live, and are even the most likely to be affected in cases where the disorder does not spread beyond a single person. These facts could indicate a biological component. The nurture angle, however, is reinforced by the fact that repression of women is common in most societies. Bartholomew himself says that he buys more into the nurture argument because of the stress of that repression, plus the fact that females are most likely to be forced into tedious, unsatisfying roles, plus the fact that, in many cultures, women are socialized to deal with stress by talking to one another. As you may have noticed from the examples I've given, talking about the strange symptoms of conversion disorder or performing the bizarre actions like dancing or laughing or going into convulsive fits in public leads to the spread of those symptoms. Because we aren't talking about a physical cause, the contagion has to be shared in other ways, and the fact that women are encouraged and expected to talk about what's going on with them may in fact make it easier for the disorder to spread. Adolescents and children are the other main susceptible groups, perhaps due in part to the fact that they are often part of tight-knit communities and are generally more suggestible. But as the Havana outbreak and the dancing plague of 1518 and countless others show us, really anyone can be affected. It seems like intense media coverage may contribute as well because of the verbal spread that we talked about earlier. Experts in this area recommend that authorities avoid talking about an outbreak as soon as it's identified as being caused by mass psychogenic illness. This was evident in the Havana situation as well. As the American media picked up the story and the U.S. government began to say that it was caused by a sonic weapon, the number of cases went up quickly. On the other hand, if mass hysteria is diagnosed too quickly, you run the risk of overlooking crucial environmental hazards, which has happened a couple of times. In the 1930s, a group of mostly female garment makers in Puerto Rico began to report troubled breathing. The situation was quickly dismissed as being purely psychogenic, and then they started to die. It turned out that there was a leak of carbon disulfate in the plant where they worked, and they had been breathing toxic fumes while the authorities told them that it was all in their head. A similar thing happened in a British school in 1990. A group of girls started complaining of nausea and abdominal pain, but it was written off as hysteria. The high rate of females reporting, the rapid onset and the quick recovery, plus the hyperventilation and the spread from classmate to classmate, all seemed to point to a classic case, but it was later revealed that they had been inadvertently poisoned by a pesticide. Cutting off a thorough investigation by calling attacks like these psychogenic is clearly dangerous. It does seem to help to shut down the school or the workplace while the investigation is run, however. Doing this calms the fears and allows for a complete examination of the environment, so it cuts off both potential paths to contagion. By separating the affected people, it's possible to break up the contact that feeds hysteria, and by closing the space, obviously it's possible to conduct an actual thorough investigation for other factors. This gives researchers the time to figure out whether most or all of the eight main characteristics of mass psychogenic illness are present. These symptoms are physical ailments with no clear organic cause, transient or benign symptoms, symptoms that show up quickly and then disappear just as quickly, 
a manifestation of symptoms that happens only in a small segregated group, high stress in that group, symptoms that spread through sight, sound, or speech alone, the spread of symptoms down the chronological age scale, so starting with older or higher status people, and finally, the majority of those affected being female. Knowing these eight characteristics, and the fact that the physical symptoms are typically motor or anxiety issues, can be helpful in a quick and accurate diagnosis. Once that's established, it's important to focus on the cause of the stress, either to reduce it or to reframe it so that it causes less distress. Research seems to show that no one is entirely immune from mass hysteria. Because of the tight-knit groups we form and the realities that we generate for ourselves, it's easy for a fear or a belief to gain steam and become true enough to cause harm. Each generation has its own terrors to contend with, and so each round of mass psychogenic illness takes on a different shape. In the 16th century, it was a fear of saintly retribution. In the 17th century, it was a fear of the devil. In the 20th century, it was upheaval caused by major political changes and movements. And today, it seems to be the deep dread we all feel about bioterrorism and the state of the environment. Where it will go next is beyond any of us to foresee, but hopefully the research we've done thus far will act as a guide through the unknown. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This is the last episode of season two, but don't fear, we're already working on season three and we'll be updating you as we set up the details and pick the launch date. If you miss us in the meantime, you can find all of our episodes archived on our website or wherever you're listening now. I wanna take this last opportunity to thank the people who made this season possible by contributing to our Kickstarter campaign. There are too many of you to name individually, but you know who you are and we are very grateful for your generosity. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cambrin Carter. Our guest star today was Jer Simpson. If you like what we do, please take a moment to write us a review or give us a few stars on iTunes. It really helps us out. You can follow us on social media or visit our website for links to source materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back soon with a whole new set of scientific explorations of the strange and pathological. Mm -hmm.